Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been really looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Last week, Travis helped us uh, to see and expose those six reasons from Hebrews 1 for why we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, uh, And and that was a wonderful passage to kind of lead us in to where we're going to be this week, uh, because we will be expanding on much of what was said last week as we continue on uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, which also deal with the exaltation of Christ. If you remember from two weeks ago, uh, when we looked at verses 5 through 8, we mentioned how this section of verses 5 through 11, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is one of the most discussed and studied passages, not just in the Bible, or not just in Philippians, but in all of the Bible as well. Um, it's often referred to simply as the, the hymn of Christ, based on the, the grand poetic style and the grammar uh, of these verses. Many believe it to be a hymn that was used uh, in worship by the early church. But as we discussed last time, whether Paul wrote these verses for this specific text, or whether he wrote them at another time, or whether he, uh, he was just borrowing uh, from an existing hymn and placing them here, that does not change Uh, the meaning of the verses at all. The verses appear here as part of God's inspired word to the church at Philippi in order for Paul to drive home for them the command that was in verses 1 through 4 and to do that in the most powerful way possible. So the reason that Paul places these words right here is because he has just told them to in, in verse, verses 3 and 4, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and to let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then, as the ultimate example of what this would look like, he says, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ. They are to think like Christ did. So then in verses 5 through 8, which we looked at two weeks ago, he takes us through this this unbelievable example of the voluntary humiliation of Christ. He moves from this this place of, of greatest divine glory to humbling himself to the point where he takes on Humanity, and not just not just taking humanity upon himself, but even be being a lowly human, a servant among men who dies in the most shameful way imaginable. And it is from this greatest possible state of humility that we now see him exalted, him rise to the position of highest exaltation. These verses are there for the purpose of showing us our need to be humble people. And now, 
We are seeing the way that God the Father exalts and rewards the humble obedience of the Son. That's what we see in verses 9 through 11. And it may at first seem odd that a passage that that gives us this amazing, clear picture of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, exalted to the highest position possible, would be used to try and influence us to humble ourselves and to put others above ourselves, because that's kind of the opposite of the way that that type of example tends to work with us. Uh, in our everyday lives, generally when we see successful people, when we see successful in the world's eyes, movie stars uh, and fam- you know, famous athletes, uh, people who have been successful in business, and we see the way that they get to live, uh, all the materialistic pleasures and comforts that they get to enjoy, that uh, generally makes us want to do whatever we can to, to rise to the top so we can have the same things. Not to mention all of the power and all the prestige, having the admiration of everyone around. And imagine being such a super powerful political force just because you have the ear of everyone because you can play basketball well, right? See, so, so we having that power, having that prestige, having the admiration of everyone, seeing others have this when we don't generally causes us to, de- to desire to be exalted, it, it makes us want to pursue exaltation. We can even give nice-sounding reasons why that's good. Like, oh, if I just had the ear of more people, then I could do good things. What we discover in this passage is that the pursuit of prestige, the pursuit of riches and the praise of people is the exact opposite of what Christ pursued. And after he was humbled, he was then exalted to a position that no politician, no earthly king, no athlete could ever even imagine. So building off of the last sermon uh, from, from two weeks ago on the humiliation of Christ, we will find as we look together now at the exaltation of Christ, even more of a resolve to live lives of humble service to our God. In fact, a right understanding of these three verses will make us desire to pursue a Christ-like mindset even more. So, so that is what we're going to see today, how a right understanding of the exaltation of Christ compels us to live our lives longing to be conformed to Christ-like humility, how a right understanding of the exaltation of Christ will compel us to live our lives Longing to be conformed to Christ-like humility. And I've got three points to help you organize your notes. Um, but, but really, if I'm being honest, the second two are a result of the first one. So it's more like one point with two sub-points. Uh, and then a bunch of other sub-points probably. Uh, but to make it easier for your notes, we'll just keep, keep to the three points. So point number one will be the exaltation of Christ. Number two, the humiliation of man. Number three, the reputation of God. So let's read this passage. Uh, We'll begin in verse one of chapter two to remind ourselves again of why Paul is giving them this amazing example. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So point number one, the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. So we, we need to remember where we left off in verse eight, right? The, the second person of the Trinity, the, the divine eternal son refused to cling to the glory and praise that is due him as the eternal God through whom all things were created, He humbled himself by adding humanity to himself. He appeared to those who saw him even as as no more than a mere man. We know him as the God-man, but he appeared as man. And and not just any regular man, but, but even a servant, one who takes the burdens of others upon himself. He became the like we talked about last time, the, the very first person in human history to become obedient to the point of death. The rest of us, death just happens. It just comes to us. He is eternal God, and no one takes his life from him, but he gives it up freely. And, not just, and, and he doesn't just die any death, but the most shameful death imaginable. He, he dies no better than a common thief. Remember, Paul says, even death on a cross, not, not on the cross, so that we do not forget that, that at the time when, when Christ died, there was nothing but shame associated with the symbol of the cross. It's not like it is today, where you have big, big uh, decorations of the cross, because we know what that means, and we call it the cross. Back then, it was a cross, There was no lower place of status or position that Jesus could have gone. Cicero, the uh, famous Roman orator, uh, said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. It was shameful enough just to think about it, let alone to actually be crucified on one. This is the extent of the utter humiliation of Jesus Christ. And it is now, as we see Jesus in this position of absolute and total humility, that we hear these next inspired words. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Though all of humanity looks in disgust upon the suffering servant, despising him and scorning him and mocking him. God the Father looks upon him in this humiliation and he rewards it. He rewards him with exaltation unlike anything we could ever imagine. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, that word there implying that it is precisely because of Christ's humiliation that God the Father exalts God the Son. What is it that the Father sees that no one in all of humanity sees? There's several things, at least. The Father now is overjoyed to, to answer the prayer of his beloved Son, the one that we heard him, uh, Jesus pray in John 17, 5. He says, when he said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the, the faithful answer to the faithful prayer of the Son to his Father. This, this exaltation is placing Christ in his proper place. This is, this is the way things are supposed to be. Jesus Christ on the throne. This has always been the plan of God, the perfect plan of God that was set in place before the foundations of the earth were laid. The perfect life of Christ, the atoning death and the victorious resurrection of our God in human flesh in order to redeem a people for his own possession. Making doomed, unrighteous enemies into justified, holy children fit for eternity. An eternity where we are joyfully in the presence of a once unapproachable God. This is the fulfillment of that amazing prophecy that we, that we started the service with a couple of weeks ago, that familiar servant song from Isaiah 52 and 53, right? Remember uh, how that section is introduced in, in verses 13 through 15 of Isaiah 52. God says through the prophet, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. The world now is finally able to see the fullness of what was described in those verses. This is prophetic fulfillment. At the very beginning of that very famous passage in Isaiah 52 and 53, the, the passage of the suffering servant, we see the promise of what we see now fulfilled in these verses from Philippians. The promise of a suffering Messiah was seen in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And now we see the promise that he shall be high and lifted up, that he shall be exalted. It is once again clear that Paul has imagery from Isaiah in his mind as he writes these words to the Philippians. For all of these reasons, God the Father is pleased to exalt Christ to the highest possible place. It is God who does this. God is the subject of both of the verbs in this verse, in verse 9. He is the one doing the acting. He is the one acting upon 
Jesus. If you remember back and notice in verses 5 through 8, it is the willingness of the Son to humble himself that is on display. We are meant to see the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one obeying, obeying all the way to the point of death. Jesus obediently humbles himself, and now God exalts Jesus. This is the ultimate example of a principle that Jesus taught on more than one occasion, a biblical principle through and through. I'm going to go uh, to several passages to show, uh, show this to you, and you can just write them down if you want to. Uh, for the sake of time, you don't have to go to all of them, but, but you'll recognize these. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The desire we see from this passage, the desire for greatness is not what leads to greatness. Not to true greatness. This is not to say that you will not receive the love of men and the admiration of others if you strive for greatness in this life. You may, but true greatness, the one who is considered greatest in the kingdom of God, comes from humbling yourself. Humbling yourself. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's, he's telling his disciples not to be like them, and he gives them this reason in verses 5 through 12. He says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make, uh, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi but other, by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Here it is again. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. They want honor and even more importantly, it seems, they, the Pharisees want to be seen in the place of honor. And Jesus warns them not to long for titles, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be the one who is exalted. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable to teach this lesson again. While he is dying at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees in Luke 14, 7 through 11, we read this. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Again, the same principle, seeking your own exaltation, presuming upon something great about you will lead you to ultimate humiliation. Placing yourself last is what leads to greatness, to true greatness. And then there's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, another familiar one, Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. but The one who humbles himself will be exalted. What is amazing here is that unlike uh, in, in this particular example, is that unlike the other examples where it can be seen that at, at least some of the motivation for exalting yourself is so that others can see you and hear how great you are, so that you'll come across as great before men, you will notice that in this parable that the Pharisee is standing by himself. It appears that he is speaking only to God. He, he doesn't have the need to look good in front of others. That at least, it's, it's not about what other men think of him, at least not in this particular place. He is going to God, comparing his life to the life of someone else, and he really expects honor from God when compared to the actions of some other more obviously outwardly immoral person. There's so many of us who think that we really understand this concept of humbling ourselves and, and generally feel we are pre, uh, we're, we're pretty obedient to it, maybe. We fail here. We think that we are somehow much better than the Pharisees because while of course it is true that, if, you know, of course it's true that I'm, I'm better than that person over there. I've, you know, I've been a Christian longer, whatever. I would, I would never say it out loud in order to make myself look better in comparison. Well, maybe just to my wife or, or a friend, but, but I wouldn't make a big deal about it. We might believe we are better than someone because they don't, oh, I don't know, come to prayer meeting or they don't come to Wednesday night or they don't maybe share the gospel as regularly as we do or they don't quite have the parenting thing down the way that we do um, or they spend money on things that we would never spend money on, or they're not spending money on things that they should be spending money on. We have actually deceived ourselves into believing that we can walk around thinking that as long as we are not sharing it with others, that we see this person like that, it somehow demonstrates our humility. I think there are probably a lot of us who fall into this area of thinking more than we should, and again, we're, we're still completely, you know, against the type of Pharisaism that, that elevates ourselves and in front of others. 
Well, we're quite comfortable with the kind that allows us to continue to privately think of ourselves as better than others. And all, all of these examples that we see, and, and as we see how it extends out into our lives, all of this to say that this theme, that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, that common theme that we see in the life and teaching of Christ everywhere, this is a kingdom principle that we must always be giving ourselves to. The, the truth that the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Because even now, as I've, I've shared these passages, I'm sure that there are very few of you who aren't familiar with them. I'm sure you've heard them before. But since this is a prime example of a common teaching in Scripture that, that we tend to think that we have down, but we do not, God graciously gives us the example of Jesus Christ that we see here described by Paul to, to completely dispel us of any notion that we have the whole be humble to be exalted thing down. And we desperately needed for this day and age because many of us treat this teaching, God exalts those who humble themselves. We treat that teaching, we take it maybe, maybe and maybe we do this inadvertently, and we make it almost tantamount to the type of thinking that we see in, in the adherence of the health and wealth gospel. We know that we're supposed to be humble, and we know we are to be servants, we know we're supposed to die to ourselves, we fully agreed with everything that was in that song that Greta just sang. And so, so we do it. So, so, all right, well, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to do it. But sometimes we're doing it still kind of hoping that others might notice so that they will exalt us. Or, e e even worse, we are secretly hoping that God is going to reward us now by having people notice and exalt us. It's showing us that, that, that what we are doing, are, we, we're using the means of living lives, refusing to seek our own exaltation from men in order to receive our true prize, the exaltation from men. It, demonstrating we, that, we, that we truly don't understand what this is supposed to look like. Again, treating it just like the health and wealth people treat faith. I'm going to trade my faith to God for rewards on earth. And to a culture that thinks and acts like that, now in comes from the Apostle Paul, the ultimate example of Jesus Christ humbling himself from heights that we could never imagine, descending to depths that we can never go, with no desire whatsoever for a single person to be forced to think rightly of him. Rightly of him, let alone just thinking well of him, but the, he, he's the one who truly to be, deserves to be thought of in a high and exalted way. He doesn't seek that, though. He's only desiring to be obedient to God the Father to please him in this life. Needing no earthly reward, needing no earthly reward at the end of his life, 
And in fact, at the end of his life, he was, he was thought less of than at any other time in his life. Those who hated him seemed vindicated, and the few who followed him were despairing. They seemed let down. They believed all to be lost. This is true humility. What it truly means to humble yourself in this life. None of this comparing ourselves to others to make, to make us feel better, even if we're not really sharing it with others. None of this secret hope that someone will notice your humility and give you the exaltation that you are trying really hard to act like you don't need or want. No fake face of humility while secretly longing to be noticed for your humility. Not treating this teaching like some sort of weird Pentecostal mysticism that if you do this for God, he'll give you the prestige before men that you do actually truly desire? No. The example of Christ is that we don't look for any type of exaltation on this side of eternity. In fact, we flee from it. We flee from it. We only want to please God. So we are truly seeking humility, not merely not seeking exaltation, Truly seeking humility. Our only desire is that we would spend our lives for him, living, living out of a desperate dependence on him, knowing that we are but unworthy sinners whom God has had great mercy on. So we are to see here the ultimate example of what Christ taught over and over again in the Gospels. And we see it modeled perfectly in his life. And Paul places it here to motivate us in our humility, to show us what humility looks like. Because there is a reward of exaltation coming to the one who faithfully humbles himself in this life. The one who is not just content, but happy to receive no earthly accolades. To never be thought of highly by anyone in this life. To live a life being completely underappreciated and never saying a word to lift ourselves up. But it's knowing that the exaltation that we seek is the kind that is given by God in eternity. That, that is our prize, not this life. So Paul places these verses in, in 9 through 11. He puts them here following the example of the humility of Christ, not so that we will never desire to be exalted, but so that we would never settle for whatever kind of prestige or exaltation that we could receive in this life, but instead to look at Christ and to strive to have his mindset and then to humble ourselves, believing with all of our hearts that God exalts the humble. And he is the only one whose estimation of us really means anything. So Jesus moves from the place of greatest shame to the place of highest exaltation. The, the word for exalted is the word huperupsosin. It's only used once in the New Testament. That's why I mispronounced it. This is the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. It means to exalt beyond measure, 
to place in the absolute most important position of power and honor. In the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it is the word that is used in Psalm 97.9 where it says, For you, O Lord, O Lord being the divine name or Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The word used there is the word to describe where Christ has been exalted to. Again, the point of lowest humiliation to, 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 to literally the highest possible exaltation. And we can see and understand that that, that exaltation even better in that next phrase. Because not only does God exalt him to the highest place, but he also bestows on him the name that is above every name. There has been, unfortunately, some confusion over this part because some have not understood what is meant by the name that, that Christ has been given by God or had bestowed upon him. It's not some name that, that we're never going to know, and it's not, the name, it's not the name Jesus because he already had that name. Notice it says, this is helpful, notice it says the name is above every name and not a name. The name that is above every other name. And we see it in verse 11, because as, that, as this passage builds to it, we are, yes, meant to ask, the name? The name. We attribute the name to him? That, that makes it so much more powerful as you just kind of read on. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name referred to here in verse 9 is Lord. And even though, even though the Greek word that is translated as Lord could mean master, and that, that's, that's appropriate to describe Christ also, it can also be used to refer in the New Testament version, uh, or to the New Testament version of the divine name of Yahweh. We see that in the Septuagint as well. Yahweh, that is the name That is what is meant by Lord. It is the only name that can be considered the name above all names. For it to be otherwise, you would have to conclude that there is a title one can hold that is greater than Yahweh. In addition to to that logic there, it will become even more evident that this is what Paul is referring to as we move into the next point. But what, what else is amazing is that this is the first time in this section, in, in, the, in the hymn of Christ, um, that th- this is the first time that we see the actual name Jesus. It does appear in verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But the hymn begins in verse 6. This, this one who descended all this way and now is being exalted to the highest place is the man Jesus of Nazareth. And we see the name given to him at his birth here so that, so that we don't dare disconnect what is being said here about who this person is, who this exalted one is from the physical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked on the earth and was among them. This Jesus 
is the one now who is called Lord. This man, Yahweh, it is incredible. Had anyone in the Old Testament, in Old Testament Israel, ever made this statement that Paul is making right here about anyone, they would have been put to death. This is not something that a Jewish man can say lightly. You can imagine his mouth trembling as he says that. Jesus of Nazareth has been exalted to the place of God and also bears the name of God. The one who showed himself to be fully obedient must now and forever be fully obeyed. This is the exaltation of Christ. That was point one. Point two, the humiliation of man. Again, you could almost consider this a sub-point to, to point one because the next two verses are the result of the truth of what was just described in verse nine as Christ is exalted to the highest place and now, and now shining forth as God himself, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We all know that the bowing of the knee is a sign of worship as well as submission. You think back to Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And, and when you look at this verse, don't think of when it says should, every knee should bow. Don't think of that as something like something we should do, but we might not. That, that, that's, that's not, it's, it's better. The word's better understood as shall or will shall or will, every knee shall bow. You can, and you can see this by the scope of who will be doing the bowing. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is in reference to the living, to the dead, and to all who dwell in heaven. Every single sentient being who has ever lived will bow their knee in submission to Jesus the Lord. And every single tongue from those same beings will confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll bow in submission to Jesus as Lord and they'll confess that he is Lord. This, and this part is really amazing, uh, this part of the, the hymn, because at this point, Paul borrows even more language from Isaiah. So again, last week we pointed out several of the key words that were, that were uh, meant as a link to show us that Paul had the servant song of Isaiah 52 and 3, 53 in mind as he was writing this section. And now in verses 10 and 11, we see a clear reference to Isaiah 45. And you need to turn there. Turn to Isaiah 45 because you need, uh, you need to see this with your own eyes. You need to see what Paul is doing here. In Isaiah 45 it's, Isaiah 45 is one of my favorite passages. It's a great chapter to read in times when you're in despair over what you see people in power in the world doing. When you have concern about what they're doing, when you have fear about what they're doing, it's a powerful passage where God is speaking strongly of his own greatness, of his own power. The main point of the passage is that there is no one like God. No God like him. He is the Lord and there is no other. And in this section in Philippians 2, we see that Paul is essentially quoting from the end of this passage that we're going to look at, but with one key and amazing difference. 
So look at Isaiah 45, uh, starting in verse 18. We'll read through 23. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, look again at Philippians 2 and what was said there. Said there in verses 10 and 11 in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul is clearly referencing Isaiah 45, 23, but he is substituting the first person statement of Yahweh to, to me, every knee shall bow. And he's attributing that exact same truth to Jesus Christ. Take the Jehovah's Witnesses right here. Jesus is God. He is the God. He has the name that is above every other name. That which Yahweh has commanded, all that he demands that we see in Isaiah 45 will take place at the name of Jesus. Mankind is humbled, is humiliated before Jesus Christ, who is God. He is to borrow the language of Isaiah 45, the creator of the heavens and the earth. There is no other. He speaks the truth. He declares the things that come to pass. There is no God besides him, a righteous God and a savior. He is God. There is no other. From his mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord of the universe. And his exaltation means the bowing of every knee and the confessing of every tongue, the utter humiliation of all of mankind. So hear this now. Those of you who are here today languishing in some sort of uncommitted spiritual state, those who might be here today for for any other reason than than, that you have submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ, young people, 
and, and others of you who are trying to weigh the cost of commitment to Christ with still being able to live for the most of all that other stuff that everyone else is living for. Listen to me now. One day you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You will confess that he is Lord. Everyone on the earth, under the earth, the dead and the living, death will not release you from this fact. This Jesus Christ is Lord will be your confession one day. The only question The only question, the question of eternal significance, the most important question that will ever be asked of you is this. Will you make this confession in joy or in dread? Will you make this confession while there is still time, while there is still hope? Will you, right now, before it is too late, confess yourself to be a sinner one who has broken the holy law of God. Confess that as a lawbreaker, God would be just to punish you with the just punishment that is due to a sinner against an eternal God, which is an eternal punishment in hell. Will you put all your trust in the Savior who left his place in heaven and humbled himself by becoming truly man, truly man, truly God, clothed in humanity, And as a man who lived a life as the perfectly obedient servant of God, who humbled himself even more than that by becoming obedient to death on a cross, taking upon himself the just wrath of God due to all sinners who would put their trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Will you repent of your sins now and place your faith in this sacrifice? All who do this, all those who now in this life, while there is time, repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ, have their sins paid in full. They are credited with the righteousness of Christ and God will raise them up one day and exalt them alongside his son. And you can do that willingly And joyfully right now, while there is time, or you will do it later when time is up. Do not be one who is made to bow and made to confess before spending eternity being punished for your unwillingness to recognize the one who is exalted in the highest position. Spending an eternity paying for your decision as you have seen him clearly revealed as Lord in this word today, for your decision to reject him, paying for your decision to continue to make little of him and much of yourself. I plead with you with the words of Isaiah, turn to him and be saved. So we have seen that the exaltation of Christ necessarily leads to the humiliation of man as, as all knees will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that brings us to our final point, point three, the reputation of God. The reputation of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a, a lot of historical evidence that points to Jesus as Lord as being the, the earliest uh, confessional formula for the church. 
was something that you could say that that would make it evident that you were in fact a Christian because no one else would say that. Unfortunately, now lots of people say it and don't really know what they are supposed to mean by it. But here Paul says that every tongue will confess this truth. This This is the supreme truth of all of history. There are a lot of things that are, that are open for discussion and that everyone has all kinds of opinion on. In fact, there is virtually nothing that you can say in this world that at least a few stubborn people out on the internet won't disagree with. But this is the truth of all time. There is coming a day when not one person, living or dead, will be able to do anything but fully acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord And what an amazing confession. Jesus, the incarnate God, the one who walked and taught on this earth as the humble servant, the same Jesus whose life and teaching we're marveling at week in and week out as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, he is also the Christ, meaning he is the Messiah. He is the promised king who stands in the line of David, who saves his people from their sins, the Messiah the servant by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus is Christ and he is Lord. He is Lord. He is God. And we've seen that through Isaiah 45. Jesus Christ is Lord right now. Right now he is to be recognized as the exalted king of the universe. The exaltation of Christ has already taken place. It began in the resurrection and he is now enthroned in the highest position imaginable. He is right now the sovereign king of the universe. He's not, don't be lulled into thinking that he's waiting to be the sovereign king when he comes back. He's right now. For the last four years, you've seen Democrats walking around with shirts and bumper stickers that say, not my president. And it's looking like we're going to see a lot of Republicans wearing the same shirts for the next four years. And of course, we know what they mean. But the reality is, of course, if you live in the United States of America, then whoever's living in the White House is your president, whether you like it or not. But right now, we live in a culture and in a, in a world where almost everyone is walking around with bumper stickers over their hearts and minds that say, not my king, but he is. Whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord and he is exalted higher than any king or president could ever imagine. He doesn't need the vote of anyone. He doesn't have to focus on the battleground states. He has humbly, obediently obeyed his father, and he was immediately given as a reward that which he refused to cling to. And this section, this passage, ends in even more Trinitarian glory. That is, we read that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we were to have time, we could also go to Isaiah 42, 8. 
Another great chapter where we read, I am the Lord, or Yahweh again. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. That means that the honor that the honor and the name bestowed on Jesus demonstrates, again, that he is God. Jesus Christ receives honor and exaltation, and this is to the glory of God the Father. If we are truly those who want to live our lives to bring glory to God, then it must be our desire to, to see Jesus Christ honored and exalted above all because we are told here that that is what brings glory to God. The proclamation, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Just like, just like Jesus said, right? Whoever honors the Son honors the Father. God alone deserves all glory. And our part in all of this is, to, is, is humbly confessing Jesus Christ is Lord and proclaiming that. One of, the, one of the greatest ways that the glory of God is seen on this earth is in rightly seeing what God the Father is pleased to display. Jesus Christ exalted and on high. Seeing that and then upon beholding this, bowing and humbly confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. Every time we hear that confession amongst ourselves or in our songs or, or read it in the word, every time we hear that confession, it is just a little taste of the greatness of the glory of God that will one, bit, one day be on full display. There is a day coming when we might be looking at a beautiful Colorado sunrise or sunset and the sky will split open and he who once descended in meekness and humility to the lowest place possible will descend again. He will come from the place of highest exaltation, now bearing the name that is above all names, with all power, with all authority, and instantly, there will no longer be a question about who is king. There will be no more atheists. There will be no more secular humanists. There will be no more postmodern thought leaders. There'll be no more Muslims, Hindus, Mormons, Roman Catholics. There will be no more Republicans or Democrats. In an instant, in an instant, there will be no more world leaders. Not one person on earth who actually wields any type of power. There will only be two types of people on that day. Those who have made the true confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and those who are about to, those who have humbled themselves before a holy God, and those who will now be made to be humble, those who spent this life in a foolish pursuit of raising themselves up in some way or another, and those whom God will exalt because they refuse to do so. On that day, the truth the hope that we see throughout all the scriptures that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. On that day, beloved, we will, we will see and hear this in an, un, in an unimaginable way as every single sentient being in the universe together cries out this confession that, that glorifies God more than anything else that can be spoken. 
The, the confession that at this moment, this, this corrupt and cursed planet now suppresses with all of its might. The confession that, that all of creation is groaning to be revealed. The confession that has been joyfully proclaimed by each of God's children as he graciously opens our eyes through the miracle of regeneration to something that we could have never seen otherwise. On that day, the earth will be filled with the glory of God when finally and righteously bursting forth from every mouth that has ever uttered a word from creation onward will come the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. And this day is certain. It is fixed. It is coming. It is our hope But until that day, we are to be those who live lives marked by humility. And in light of of all that we have seen from this glorious section of Philippians 2 and, and what we heard last week from Hebrews 1, why, why would we ever not continually fight to keep selfish ambition and conceit far from us? We have no business ever at any point congratulating ourselves or hoping that someone else will notice us. How could we, how could we as redeemed sinners ever seek anything that the one who was infinitely worthy of all power and praise and glory refused to seek? This world is going to continue to place before you nothing but opportunities for you to pursue selfish interests, to seek your own exaltation, to seek your own glory. And you must, we must see the battle for humility to be an ongoing one and fight to refuse to seek our own exaltation. If you you don't think that's going to be a battle, you're ignorant. That, That is why Paul gives us here the perfect example Until that day, until the return of Christ, until that day, when that confession is uttered, until that day, we must be those who live lives of humble obedience for the joy of seeing God glorified by proclaiming and living the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the only way that we can hope for any type of success in this is by striving after the mind of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.